You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. John 14, verses 15 through 31. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, And the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, How is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave to you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before, it takes place so that when it does take place you may believe i will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming he has no claim on me but i do as the father has commanded me so that the world may know that i love the father rise let us go from here Well, good morning, friends. It's good to see your faces, and for the most part, see your faces. Uh, and it's good to see uh, some familiar faces and some new faces as well. I had a little panic attack before I came up here because as Josh was praying, he said that I was going to be preaching out of John 15. And I definitely did not prepare a sermon for John 15, but luckily we got it corrected. Uh, so uh, Krista, Krista knew exactly what I needed. Uh, yeah, I just want to say, first of all, greetings from South Canyon Baptist Church. Uh, I know you guys had Brent here a couple weeks ago, and uh, we're just so glad that we were able to partner with you in this way, especially somebody like me who saw the workings of South Canyon, specifically in the plan of Redeeming Grace, and, and that particularly made uh, coming to Rapid City very attractive to Laura and I because we knew that uh, you guys were coming from a church that loved people enough to, to send them out, right? That's a good thing. And so we're a part of what you guys are doing and are so glad that you guys have allowed, uh, at least for me today, to be able to preach to you. So with that said, why don't we get started as you turn to John 14, uh, and we'll be going through verses 15 through 31. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you all a question. Do you know anyone that can basically just fix anything and everything? 
probably for most of us, there's that's somebody in the room. He, I think he might be standing up in the upper right corner. But for me, that person is my step-grandfather, whose name is Ray. My sister and I affectionately call him Da because my, gram, my sister could not pronounce Grandpa whenever she was younger, but his nickname has stuck uh, to this day. We call him Da. Um, anyway, as I was saying, my Da, he can, he can fix anything. If, if you're having car troubles, at the very least, he could run a diagnostic on the car, uh, but more than likely, he'd be able to fix it. Uh, if you're into shooting or anything like that, if, if you ever needed a contraption so you could shoot clay pigeons more effectively without having to use an archaic plastic thrower, all my DAW would need is, is a tire, a spring, some pieces of metal, and a welder, and he'd have it to you within the month. Uh, maybe, perhaps, you dropped your Game Boy in the toilet and, and, and got it so wet uh, that you thought, oh, this is never going to turn on, and as a kid, you're like, oh my gosh, like, I'm never going to see the light of day. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you have that person in your life that you can run to with that, with that soaked Game Boy. Um, anyway, my, my DAW has fixed that and, and can fix that uh, if you ever run into that trouble. I, know, I don't even know. How many of you guys know even what Game Boys are anymore, right? I'm sure that for many of us, it may not be my DAW, but we all know somebody like that. Probably for most of the adults here, if you have car troubles, you know that you can go to Joe and he can work on your car. If you have plumbing issues, you can go to Dennis. He knows everything about plumbing. You can go to those people confidently knowing that they can fix these things. Knowing somebody like that causes us to live differently, doesn't it? Maybe we we drive that 15-year-old car a little bit harder because we know that Joe, he can fix that. Uh, Or maybe for the kids in here, we know that we play with that toy or or ride that bike a little bit harder because we know mom and dad are going to be able to take it and fix it, hopefully. Ultimately, there's a sense of peace and a confidence that comes with knowing that we have those helpers or those fixers in our lives. In our text in John 14 this morning, Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand this very same thing. In the hours leading up to his death, Jesus wants his disciples to know and to understand that God has given them everything and really everyone in their lives so that they can live in utter devotion to Jesus. What you need to know is that for these disciples, for these 11 men that are still left there, their world is about to be flipped upside down. Tensions are rising in the story. So before we read the first part of our reading this morning, I think it might be helpful if I just kind of run through the structure of John, 15, of John 14, 15 through 31. So first in John, in verses 15 through 17, Jesus promises his Holy Spirit to the 11 and to the disciples there. And that is supposed to give them comfort. And then in verses 18 through 24, Jesus discusses the implications of this particular promise of the Holy Spirit coming to them. And then in verses 25 through 31, Jesus' final words of comfort to these disciples as he's getting ready to leave them and spend these very last little moments with them. So why don't we do this before uh, I tell you guys the main idea. I would like to just read the first couple of verses from our passage this morning. Why don't we start in verse 15? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. 
You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This first section kind of serves as the backdrop to everything that we're going to be talking about. But I think the main idea or the main thrust of the passage that we're going over this morning in verses 15 through 31 is this. Because we are to totally live for Jesus or to live totally for Jesus, Jesus has given himself totally for us. If you're a note taker, I'll repeat that again. Because we are to live totally for Jesus, Jesus has given himself totally for us. We're going to be working through that main idea through uh, not only the structure that I gave you earlier, but also through two main ideas and two main points. And the first is total living, and then the second is total giving. So why don't we start and begin with that first point, total living. At first reading of this passage, and I, maybe you felt this way as Krista was reading the passage, I, I felt somewhat cross-eyed after reading it. it it's, it's like Jesus says the same things, but he doesn't say them in, in, in the same way. But the way that he says it, it's just different enough that it comes across a little bit confusing. But I think the statement that we have to keep in mind as we work through this passage is found in verse 15, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That statement is the building block for the rest of the passage in verses 15 through 31. What Jesus wants these 11 disciples to understand is that their love for him is manifested by their obedience to him. While there's many implications to this statement that Jesus makes in verse 15, he is making it crystal clear to those men and to those of us today that loving Jesus and living for Jesus means living completely, totally, and holistically for him. I want you guys to just think about it. Put yourself in the disciples' shoes. Think about the setting of that statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus just washed their feet, right? Talked about Judas's betrayal, and that threw them into a frenzy and confused them all. He then commanded that they love one another right after he says that he's going to be betrayed. Says that he's going somewhere that they can't go, which puts them in more of a frenzy. He predicts Peter's denial, which surely would have been just totally mind-blowing to Peter, and then tells him not to be troubled because he's the way, the truth, and the life. And then boom, just like a ton of bricks on top of them says, hey, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. Isn't this statement disorienting? It's confusing, right? It seems like the least of the disciples' worries should be keeping his commandments, just given all that he said. I mean, he, we're talking about betrayal and denial. And the one thing that you want, to, want me to know is, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments? I think what Jesus is getting at here is that this statement, it should be that. It should be disorienting. It should be confusing. It should be ultimately worrisome to them. He's already predicted that one of them is going to betray him and didn't and one of them is going to deny him, it should be worrisome for them, knowing that, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. This statement in the backdrop of everything that Jesus has already said would have given the disciples absolutely no confidence in themselves. 
I can imagine upon hearing these words, if you can kind of put yourself maybe in Peter's shoes, you can see Peter, who, God love him, he just always says and does the wrong thing sometimes, it seems like. But you know in the back of his mind, he just like throws up his hands and goes, I can't handle any of this. I can't do any of this. I, this is, I'm going into an emotional frenzy. I'm a wreck here. This is completely overwhelming. I, I, I'm just going to fail. Jesus. I actually believe this is exactly what Jesus was going for whenever he made this statement. But luckily for them and for us, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is not the only thing that he says here, right? Probably knowing that their hearts and minds are just spinning out of control at this point, Jesus says to them in verses 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is an amazing statement in the backdrop of everything. And I think it's really, really significant for three different reasons. I think it's significant for many reasons, but I want to talk about three reasons why this statement of I'm going to send another helper to you that's going to be with you forever is significant. I want to talk about those three things. First, Jesus is wanting them to know that what he is asking of them to keep his commands can only be accomplished and will only be accomplished by the Trinity. Jesus as God the Son, God as God the Father, and the Holy Spirit as God the Spirit are going to make sure that they give the disciples everything that they need to accomplish that first statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. No doubt that statement to keep Jesus' commands would have been daunting to the eleven, but Jesus comforts them by saying that the trying God is not just going to be actively involved, but literally with them in their pursuit of obedience to King Jesus. My friends, If you're a Christian, do you realize that when God saves the Christian, that every single person of the Trinity is intimately involved in that process? From the first spiritual breath that the Christian takes all the way to the day where God takes them home or Jesus comes back, the Trinity is actively involved in the life of the Christian. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are personally involved invested in the work of salvation. I mean, if you just look at verses 16 through 17, you see every member of the Trinity mentioned. It's important for us to understand that the Trinity is actively involved in keeping us until the day of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think Jesus wants them to know that this promise of the Holy Spirit is exclusively for those who come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior which happens to be also the people that are going to keep his commandments. You see, for a person to even possibly begin to think that they need to follow Jesus as king, it's on request from Jesus to the Father, and then ultimately caused to fruition from the Holy Spirit. The only way that we know that we ought to follow Jesus and understand our sin against God is because God the Son asked God the Father to send God the Holy Spirit, to us so that we might see ourselves for who we are and see who Jesus really is. What this means 
for those of us that are in Jesus Christ is that salvation is ultimately a gift. It's nothing that we do. And I think that should give us even more confidence, right? Jesus knows and knew everything about you, including the sin that ultimately separates you from the Father. But God, being rich in his mercy, still gives the believer the gift of the Holy Spirit to make sure that you ultimately see Jesus for who he is. Third and finally, I think Jesus wants these guys to know that the Holy Spirit will be with them forever. That word forever just rings like a gong, right, in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper to be with you for a time. No, maybe just on Wednesdays. No, forever. God, the Holy Spirit, is literally with you as Jesus the Son sends him to the believer forever. This promise and gift of the Holy Spirit are not contingent on if they successfully keep all of Jesus' commandments or if they remain faithful during the trials that are ultimately going to come to them here soon. But ultimately, their salvation, their relationship with God the Father is dependent upon the eternal relationship of the triune God that they share. My friends, as long as the Trinity has been and forever will be in perfect union with one another, so shall the believer always be sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit isn't a temporary gift or contingent on anything that we do, but it's ultimately contingent upon God himself always existing in perfect relationship as the Trinity. This is unbelievable. And we're going to talk about the implication of this here in a moment. But because we're sealed until the day of redemption, does this mean for the Christian that we can just live life however we want? I don't, I don't think so. But what I think it does mean is that for those who are truly in Christ, there will never be separation from God. Or in the words of Paul, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Your sin whenever the Holy Spirit comes to you, no longer separates you from Christ Jesus. Think about this for a moment. Did Jesus know that Peter was going to deny him? Yes, you guys heard about that, right? And was Peter going to be devastated by his denial of Jesus? Absolutely, it wrecks him. You're going to find that out later in your series in John. But did Jesus take away the Holy Spirit because of it? No. As a matter of fact, it is Peter in the book of Acts who was first filled and preached by being filled by the Holy Spirit. My friends, this promise fulfilled in Peter should give us great comfort. God knows every single part of us. He knows every sin that you have committed and will commit. And for the believer, he still gives you himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. He knows the good, he knows the bad, he knows the ugly, he knows the present, the future, and the past. And yet, he still loves us to not only just send his son to die for us, but to also give us the gift of the Holy Spirit that is to be with us forever. My friends, we serve a very gracious and loving God that has sealed us by the promise of the Holy Spirit for himself. He wants to love you and wants to be in relationship with you that much. He loves you so much. And this is clearly evidence in the way that Jesus speaks so tenderly 
to the 11 in verses 18 through 24. Let's read verse 18. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Surely, in, in the minds of the 11, they just would have been reeling and whirling. And yet, as a father who comforts his crying child, as a mother who holds her baby, Jesus reminds and reassures these guys that he is not going to leave them as destitute or lonely orphans. And yet, we find Jesus still has to leave. So what's Jesus getting at here? He says, I'm not going to leave you. But in verse 19, yet a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me. So what's Jesus getting at here? I think what we can find here in the latter half of verse 19 and through verse 24 is that Jesus' death and resurrection are unbelievably necessary to the promise he just made concerning the Holy Spirit. My friends, if you don't understand anything else today, I want you to understand that Jesus had to die and he had to be resurrected for him to keep that promise. The only thing that the promise of the Holy Spirit is contingent on is the work in the person of Jesus Christ. For it is in that promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit that we are able to actually be united to Jesus and to the Father. It's almost as if Jesus is saying in verse 19, because I'm going to die and rise again, you are really going to be able to live and you're going to be able to love in the way that I want you to. You will be able to keep my commandments. And I love how Jesus just doubles down on that promise, right? He said, it's because of my union with the Father that this promise comes to fruition. Let's look at that in verse 19. Excuse me, in verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. That relationship that Jesus the Son has with God the Father seals and comes to fruition in our ultimate salvation. The promise of the Holy Spirit is dependent upon, again, that relationship that's happening within the Trinity. I, I hope you guys see this. It's in Jesus' resurrection, his, glorif his glorification, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, that death that we deserve and to live a life that we should have lived and to be raised back to life so that we could have that promise of the Holy Spirit. Again, if Jesus would have never died, resurrected, ascended to the Father, we would in no way be able to obey God as Father. But not only that, if Jesus would have never died and resurrected, we would have never known the love of our Heavenly Father. Do you see how much Jesus loves you, my friends? Enough to lay down his life for you just so that you can know the love that the Father has for you. I think oftentimes God the Father is painted in this picture as this wrathful and vengeful God that is just merely appeased because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. But what we see here in this last little bit of conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples is that Everything that is getting ready to happen to Jesus, the beatings, the whippings, the scourgings, the crucifixion, is all meant to show you, believers in this room, how much Jesus loves you. 
It's not just so that God's wrath is simply appeased, but because he loves you so much. He loves you so much that God himself, God the Son incarnate, took on flesh so that he might not leave you as abandoned and destitute and lonely orphans without a good father. He loves you that much that he gave himself. Perhaps you're here today and you don't know that love that God has for you. My friends, I think this passage urges us to look to and to believe in Jesus. For it's in his death and definitely in his resurrection that we see the love of the Father manifested. Not only would he give himself, but he would make sure that he himself would be alive to ascend to give us the Holy Spirit. What a great and amazing truth. What a great love that we know. And that love, my friends, it just doesn't stop simply with Jesus. Jesus makes it clear in verses 21 through 24 that love for Jesus, which has been given to us by Jesus via the Holy Spirit, is always manifested by obedience to Jesus' commandments. Again, Jesus restates in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. I'm not sure about you all, but this statement reminds me uh, of that line in the musical uh, Les Miserables. I don't know if anybody is a fan of that musical. I love it. But there's a line in there that I just absolutely love. And, and it's, to love another person is to see the face of God. I think this is what Jesus is getting at there in verse 21. It, I, I think it's amazing. It's astonishing that we can see Jesus' love manifesting not only by what he has done for us in salvation, but also in how we keep Jesus' commandments. For us, what that means is that all those one another statements that Jesus commands of those who follow him are to be used as the vehicle for how people see Jesus' love. So what this means for those of you here at Redeeming Grace Church at the Journey Museum is that anytime you love one another, Jesus is seen. Every time that you have to come in and set up and tear down just so that you can do it again the next week, Jesus is seen. Anytime that you serve in the nursery so that tired mother and father can just sit and rest under the preaching of the word, Jesus is seen. My friends, whenever you pray for one another with all the hurts and pains of this world that come at you, when you pray for one another and fulfill needs that each of you have, Jesus' love is seen. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you to pray for Redeeming Grace Church and pray for your brothers at South Canyon as well to be characterized by this kind of love. Yes, we have to preach and we have to talk about the gospel. We have to do that to make Jesus known with our mouths. How, how are they to hear without anybody to preach to them? But Jesus knows here in verse 21 that his love is evidentially seen in our love for others. Believers love others. And my friends, this love that we show in keeping Jesus' commandments show our union with Christ and with the Father. This love, it's particularly unique, right? I think this is why good Judas's question is so important for us this morning. Good Judas's question, the question of how the love of Jesus is only manifested in the leaven, and for those of us who simply place our faith in Jesus and not to the rest of the world is unbelievably important 
because it divides and draws a line between those who simply know about Jesus, people that essentially, hey, I claim to be good. I know who Jesus is. Yeah, like, I know him. There's a line of separation between those people and those of us who have been truly transformed by Christ. I think if we were to read verse 23 backwards, we would see Jesus' answer to good Judas's question a little bit easier. So let me read verse 23, and then I'll kind of give you that logic of reading this backwards. So verse 23 says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So follow kind of along with me in this line of thought. To have Jesus be revealed to you, you need the Father and Jesus to come make their home in you. Echoing John's words in chapter 3, right? That you must be born again by the Spirit. And then the Father loves the person who has been indwelt by the Holy Spirit through the new birth. Again, they make their home in Him. They make Him love Him. And then it is those who have been loved by the Father through the new birth that are able to keep Jesus' commandments. It kind of works backwards, right? I think what I'm trying to get at here is that there is an inside-out transformation that makes manifest the love of Jesus inside of a person. While we may know many who are good people, that common morality and that common goodness is only skin deep. I'm not sure if you guys have ever watched uh, The Ellen Show. She has these great, funny videos. Oftentimes, my favorite thing that she puts out is that uh, she scares one of her assistants through a haunted house. I think she's so funny, but she also does a lot of good things. But we know that her goodness is only skin deep, right? She's been known to be angry and to be frustrated with her assistants and other people that she works for. And it's because that common morality, that common goodness that she has, it just doesn't go very deep at all. She has not had this inside-out change that happens to a believer. What Jesus does in the believer is he takes their heart as potter with a clay and works their heart from the inside out on the spinning wheel and works the believer into the image of himself. And that's how he makes the image and how he makes the love of himself known to people. He works on them from the inside out, friends. Brothers and sisters, I have to ask you, are you characterized by this kind of transformation? Do your friends, your family, do they notice the visible difference because of what Jesus has done inside your heart? For the kids or students in the room, I want to ask you all a question. This is kind of important for you. Perhaps you've considered wanting Jesus to come and live in your heart. Maybe that's you today. I, I think that's a good and right thing to want. And I'm excited that you want to do this. I think you should talk to your parents more about this. But what I want to encourage you with, kids, is to not just want Jesus to come and live inside of your heart, but I want you to give him your heart. I want you to take your heart and say, here, Jesus, I want you to have this heart. Would you change me from the inside out? Jesus wants every part of you. He wants to live inside of you, but you need to give him your heart. And I pray that you'll talk to your parents. Maybe you need to come and talk to me about that afterwards. Over and over again, my friends, we see Jesus wants the 11 disciples to see that everything in salvation is only because of the work that God himself does in the life of the believer from the inside out from the endowing of the Holy Spirit all the way to the transformation of our lives. God is the initiator and he is 
the finisher. This is why Jesus asked for complete and total obedience to his commands. Because he knows that God will be the one who works in that person to that very end. God will make sure that he completes the finished work of salvation. My friends, total living for God cannot be done without God himself. Which is why Jesus gives us everything we need to live in a way that brings us to our second point, which is total giving. In verses 25 through 31, we see Jesus' closing words in these last moments that he has with his disciples. He reminds them that he's giving them these words while he's with them because this is what he desires for them to know. But that his time, it's coming to a close and things are very soon going to be topsy-turvy for these young men. Again, I just want you to place yourself in this setting. We don't know the ages of these guys, but more than likely, they're at most in their mid-20s, and maybe even some of them, like the particular book, they're teenagers. They've just been overcome by emotion because all they can think about is their teacher, this man that they love. They've spent three years of their lives constantly with this man. He's going to leave them. Can you imagine how they're feeling? Friends, if, if you only had a last few moments of time with people, what would you say to those people? How would you say it? I think this last little bit of Jesus' address to the disciples reveals Jesus' tender love in his heart for his disciples and all those who follow him. But for these 11, he knows that in the moments of his arrest and his crucifixion, all of this that he's told them, it's just going to leave them. And yet, in his tenderness and in his love, he tells them, first, a reminder, right? He reminds them that he's going to give them the Holy Spirit. What Jesus has been teaching them specifically in chapters 13 and 14, what you guys have been going over already, it's going to be totally lost on them. In one ear, out the other. It's going to be totally lost on them. And honestly, it's probably really confusing for them in this very moment. But this teaching and all of what Jesus has taught will come back to them through the Holy Spirit. The ability to recall and to obey Jesus' commands is only because the believer is enlightened by the Holy Spirit in their heart and mind. The only way, my friends, for you to see Jesus for who he really is as the promised Messiah who comes to give salvation to sinners before God is through the Holy Spirit. Friends, I, I think what I want us to get at here is that we need to be praising God the Holy Spirit for what he does. Often, he's a neglected member of the Trinity. Be because he's equal in nature and just as extraordinary in his person, he deserves every bit of your prayers and your praise. Not just because he convicts you of sin and helps you to see Jesus but also because of the work that he does in you to transform you to look more like Jesus. I think this is why Jesus, in verse 21, can say so, so lovingly, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This peace that Jesus gives to the disciples can only, be, can only come because he gives himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. My friends, the Holy Spirit is the reason why their hearts should not be troubled. And especially considering the trials that they're getting ready to go through, there's a peace that should be in them 
because he is going to give them the Holy Spirit, a peace that only comes from the Holy Spirit. My friends, this world cannot know this kind of peace because they only know worldly peace. It just allows for us. Peace, in man's view, only allows for us to just tolerate one another. But my friends, this peace that comes by knowing we as sinners have been reconciled to a holy God, the peace that Jesus talks about here of having union with him through the Holy Spirit comes from knowing that we, as rebels against God, are now at peace with God. But this reconciliation can only be accomplished by Jesus giving himself, which is the second thing he tells them in his last moments with them. What Jesus says in verse 28, that if you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. When he says that, he is saying that this seeming tragedy of his death on a cross is not just going to be for God's glory, but it's for our good, friends. Without the cross, there is no reconciliation for us back to the Father. One commentator said it this way, Jesus, accommodating himself to our weakness, places himself between God and us. And indeed, as it has not been granted to us to reach the height of God, Christ descended to us that he might raise us to God. Oh, my friends, it is by Jesus being lifted up on the cross that he is able to draw all men to himself so that they may be drawn to the Father. The Son of Man must be lifted up so that people may come to know who God the Father really is, one that loves them and desires to have a relationship with them. It's by the very cross of Christ, by the death of our God, that we see the love of God manifested. Maybe for some of you here, you might be wondering, why do we celebrate the death of this Jesus guy? While I would argue of what we believe about Jesus, we celebrate about Jesus' death and about the cross because it's the only way that we as sinful humans have been able to be united to God. You see, what Jesus did on the cross was take the punishment for sin that you and I deserve. But Jesus gave himself so that you and I would be restored back to God in a right relationship so that we could live a life that is wholly pleasing to God. My friends, we rejoice at death because it is by death that we truly live. Jesus, just moments before his death, tells them of his death and of his resurrection because he knows those things are the linchpin of belief in him as the savior of the world. Without his death and without his resurrection, there's no Christianity. And I think this is why the tone of Jesus just, it's sudden, it suddenly and seemingly switches in verses 30 through 31. So let me read that for us real quickly. I will no longer talk much with you, for the rule of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Their time is coming to the close with Jesus. His death is looming, and the ruler of this world is ready to give and to lay the death blow to Jesus. But our Lord, our Savior Jesus, sets his face to the cross, even with agony and suffering looming over him. 
for the joy of bringing these 11 men and those of us who have faith today back to his Father. My friends, Jesus asked much of his disciples of them that they would obey every single one of his commandments. He asked them that because he truly loves them. And now he calls us to give our lives totally for him because he loves us. He loves us totally. He has given himself totally so that we would be living for that very end, to live totally for him. Remember what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder who was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. My friends, we are to consider Jesus and his death and his total giving to us so that we might be able to be totally living for him. Much like the 11 disciples, my friends, Jesus asks much of us in our lives. Maybe for some of us in here, he's asking that we forsake our careers and our goals for the sake of advancing his name. Maybe he's asking some of you here to to leave your families and to leave your friends behind for the sake of just following him. My friends, while, while these things may seem to cause despair and to cause hopelessness. Whatever Jesus is asking totally of you, I want you to remember that Jesus loves you. He has held nothing back from you. He has given himself totally for you. And this allows for us to not just live confidently in this world, but with a peace that surpasses all understanding. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you do not give as the world gives. God, the world would have wanted a king that conquered and reigned in a violent way. But God, you give us yourself. You gave us yourself in the person of your son who laid down his life for us because he loves us. You gave us yourself in the person of the spirit so that we might be able to know who you really are, God. And not only that, so that we might be able to be transformed into the image of Jesus. So God, I ask that as you've called us to totally live for you, that you would help us to remember and help us to recall that you have given yourself totally to us. God, use us to the very end to make your love known to people and so that we might reflect in our obedience to you who you really are as Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand and sing one last song with us? And for my love is all
Tanner, come join me up here. And uh, we like to leave a little time at the end for some questions. And so if you have some questions, um, feel free to raise your hand and we'll uh, talk about them together. They can be about the message or they can be about where Tanner gets his clothes or and whatever <laughs> you want to know. I don't, I don't know. I just made that up. So... Um, just one question, I guess, to kind of get this rolling is that he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. What are the commands? He doesn't list his commands there. What yeah. Could you kind of summarize what exactly are we called to obey? Sure. I, I think um, I, I was reminded of this uh, this morning. I was teaching a Sunday school class at South Canyon. And I think part of it is that Jesus wants us to hold heart, soul, and mind and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And I think I, I mentioned this in the sermon that God also calls us to love one another very specifically throughout the Gospel of John. Um, and so I, I think of particularly Josh in, in chapter 13. He says, you know, if you, if you love me, 
uh, or the world's going to know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. And so I think that's one way. And ultimately, obviously, it's loving him as our God and as our creator and as our savior is how he's wanting uh, them to be remembered. So those are the commands that are kind of, I'm thinking that he has in the back of his mind as he's sharing with them. Everything really uh, in chapters 13 and 14 that he's exhorting to them, this is what he's saying, hey, you need to remember this. Yeah, that's good. Because he, yeah, he does say, just to quote it here in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give, you, I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So, yeah, I think that's exactly right. He's, that's the way to, to, uh, to understand what his commands are, is they basically boil down to love. Love right. him, love others, and that's how people will know who the disciples are. Um, let me ask just another question. Like, why is the Holy Spirit referred to as a helper yeah. two different times in the passage? Yeah. So I think ultimately, again, we have to remember the setting and the context of what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking to these guys that their world is just going to be totally wrecked whenever he gets arrested and crucified. And so he's trying to help them, to remind them, hey, like this Holy Spirit, he's a helper because one, he's going to ultimately remind you of what I've done for you. So in his death and his resurrection, they're going to come to understand, which I know kind of makes weird sense, but I'm sure that the gospel message came to more fruition to them in Acts um, because they're like, oh, Jesus died and resurrected. I know like the whole picture of the Bible now because the Holy Spirit kind of enlightened my eyes to understand Jesus for who he really is. So that's one, I think, of how he helps us. But two, I also think he helps us remember what Jesus has said to us as we walk through life, especially for those of us who are believers, as we interact with the world. He's reminding us, the Holy Spirit is reminding us this is what sin is. This is not what sin is. This is what is conforming to Christ. This is not what is conforming to Christ. So ultimately, the Holy Spirit is a helper to, remember, to help us to remember the gospel and to help us to remember how we are to be obedient to King Jesus. And the helper actually helps us love, right? Right. I mean, right. Yeah, so yeah. it all yeah. kind of ties together. Any questions out here? Jacob. Okay, let me restate that question for the live stream here. Why did Jesus want Judas Iscariot to betray him, to turn him in? And why did he want Peter to, um, to deny him? The first part of that question is a mystery. <laughs> so I, I'm not exactly, for all scripture to be fulfilled, so for Jesus to be ultimately crucified, to be the atoning sacrifice of our sins, somebody needed to betray Jesus. Um, somebody needed to hand him over to uh, the Roman officials and to the Pharisees for him to be able to um, to be able to be used in that particular way. I think particularly of uh, of that passage of you know of Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Um, God knew that it was only even though those two were brothers, it was only out of one of them that the promise to Abraham was going to come out. And so I think much in the same way as we see in the life of Jesus. Um, the promise of salvation had to come through Jesus' betrayal, and somebody had to betray him. Um, and the second part of the question, can you remind me of that one? Uh, is it, why did Peter uh, have to deny Jesus? I, you know, to be honest with you, I'm, I think Peter is just like you and I, right? We're sinners. Um, I think under the same kind of pressure, we might have done the same exact thing. 
But I, I think especially in the backdrop of what we were talking about today, uh, Jacob, is that I think Jesus ultimately wanted Peter to remember he's helpless without Jesus, and ultimately that he's helpless without the Holy Spirit pointing his eyes to Jesus. Um, so everything in my mind that God allows, especially in the Gospel of John, um, that we see that may from our kind of worldly eyes look like a tragedy, God ends up using for the glory of himself. So while Peter does deny Jesus, one of the sweetest passages in all of the book of John is whenever Jesus restores Peter. And you guys will get to that, but I want to encourage you to read that later part and uh, just talking about, hey, Peter, do you love me? And he says, feed my sheep. And what do we find out in Acts? Peter does feed his sheep. He preaches the gospel for the very first time uh, to those uh, unbelieving Jews. So, yeah. And I just add to your question, Jacob, that um, I think I think the betrayal of Jesus of Judas and the denial of Jesus deeply grieved Jesus. Hmm. I don't think that he was, but it was somehow part of God's plan to use even their sin to bring about His redemption. So, so I think the fact that Jesus wanted that to happen, I don't know if I would put it exactly that way, but I think Jesus was grieved by it, but it still was necessary as part of the the plan of God, and that's in. That's in ways that are hard for us to totally get our minds around. So, yeah, very good. Another question, Stephen. So you're talking about the Holy Spirit, and for those who put their faith and trust in Christ as the Lord and Savior, but can't understand the promise of God, as we were saying earlier, uh, He lives and dwells within us, the Holy Spirit. So it's sealed. Um, so uh, I understand this life. Uh, Okay, let me summarize that for the live stream, <laughs> and you have 10 seconds to gather your oh, thoughts. But yeah, so if I'm getting this right, so the triune God is with the believer in this life. One day we're going to be glorified with him. Will we still be indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Is that the basic premise of your question, or is that simply an earthly reality in terms of like pre-glorification? Yeah. I think, I think we'll still have him indwelling in us because I think the way for our faith to be made sight like, again, if we can't know Jesus for who he really is without the Holy Spirit, then we can't have the Holy Spirit outside of us uh, without being able to see God the Father, God, in, especially in glorification. We won't be able to see him for who he truly is without the Holy Spirit, almost kind of, I would imagine, shielding us <laughs> to be able to see uh, that. So um, I, I think that it's not just a, a temporary thing. I think it's it's temporary in the sense that, like, it's what God sees like as kind of the marker of like, hey, this is my child. That's not my child. But I think whenever our faith does become sight, whenever we are with God in glory, he's going to indwell in us. But that relationship is, it's still kind of a mystery, right? We don't know what it's going to be until glorification. But I, I tend to think that he's going to be indwelling in us, but it's just going to be a more fully realized uh, reality. Um, we are going to experience with the Father in union with the Son in glory uh, more concretely uh, in, in eternity. Yep, I would agree with that. And I, it talks about the 
indwelling Holy Spirit being a down payment, which means it's just the beginning, right? So I have no reason to think that when we get to heaven, the Holy Spirit's now like, whew, glad that was over with. It's actually, we're going to have the whole, we're going to have perfect fellowship with the whole triune God. And I don't, I don't see any reason to think that the Holy Spirit would then leave us um, in that sense. So, I kind no. of wonder too, maybe like as, you know, our bodies are going to be resurrected, like the Holy Spirit's got to be a part of that. Like if, you know, for some of us, we may be rotting and gross on the ground and the Holy Spirit's got to do the work to rebuild our bodies. And, and I think, especially as a new creation, we're going to be living life. It's just going to be fully pleasing and glory, glorifying to God. So the Holy Spirit's just going to have full reign over our bodies um, without our flesh kind of holding him back, if you will. I don't think it gets held back by our flesh, but you know what I mean. Cool. Yeah, he finally got us there, so <laughs> why would he want to move out? Right. Yeah. Jackson, did you have one? Can we start doing morning donuts again, Tanner? Yes. Whenever the journey wants no. you to know. And I say no. Yeah. We have another question? Yeah. Good Judas's question. Yeah. So let me restate that. Yep. Let me restate that. So Judas's question is, Lord, how is it that you will manifest your manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So is it just for us, or or what's what's going to happen? So how did he answer that yeah. question? Um, he manifests himself to us by us loving one another, I think is ultimately how people see it. So if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home in him. Again, I, this is that verse I said, let's do backwards logic on it, right? So for the father and the son to make their home within the, the heart of the 11 there, um, he, they have to be loved by the father and because they're going to be loved by the Father, they're going to love Jesus and keep his word. And so particularly, that's how they're going to be particularly manifest. Jesus kind of, if you will, makes the dividing line very clear between unbelievers and believers. Um, it's going to be those that love one another and love God. Uh, for unbelievers, they may love one another, but they may not love God. Um, and I think that's particularly how he answers that question. Ultimately, it's going to be manifested in if you love God and if you love others. I, th I think you can go back to Hebrew, or John 13, 35, too. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. So I think when we love one another, we have a tangible experience of Christ is loving Us. Tanner through me. And I'm getting to actually, like, experience the love of Christ. And in that sense, I'm manifesting. I have a love for Tanner that I wouldn't have if it weren't for Christ. But I think the outside world sees that and goes, okay, I see a love in them that I haven't, ex I haven't participated or experienced yet. And so I think that's kind of how it works is that we experientially see Christ is living in me because I have a love for one another. And I think the world sees that kind of on the outside. So I don't know if that makes sense. We're made yeah, manifest by the experience and they're made manifest by the observation of our experience of Christ that I think draws them in and brings that together. So... I don't know if that makes sense. But. Yeah, I think to make like a biblical example, like think of the love that David and Jonathan had for one another. You know, many like modern people today think that the way that they treated and loved one another is like more than what it ought to be. 
But I think it just looks strange to the watching world, and it's because those two men were honoring God, and, and because they honored and loved God so much, they just loved each other really well as friends. So, yeah, I think it just it's going to look different um, between believers, and that's how it's going to be manifested to the world by the way that we love one another. Did you have one? Great. Okay. Good. That I saw over here. Okay. Well, thank you, Tanner. I really appreciate you bringing God's word to us. And um, yeah, that whole, like when in the Great Commission, it says, I was thinking about this, um, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, is actually a call to love, right? To obey Jesus' commands is, a, is to love Jesus. And so by those two go together. So the commission is to help people love Jesus, right? bring them to faith in Jesus, and then discipleship is loving Jesus, right, and loving one another. So anyway, just a, a neat little reflection there. So um, as, uh, as we close out, uh, I would encourage you to download our church app, our church center app. If you're interested in that, you can register for next Sunday's gathering. There's also other events, our order of services on there. So that's kind of the one-stop shop for finding out what's going on in the life of our church. I don't know why it keeps doing that, kind of bump into the next thing. Um, but anyway, so just want to encourage you to consider registering for next Sunday, see what other events we have going on. And then uh, I do have some copies of this book right here by David Platt, Before You Vote, Seven Questions Every Christian Should Ask. I just thought this was really encouraging how to think through political stuff and test your own heart, see what the scriptures say, know how to have conversations with other people. So there's some extra copies out there. They're free to you. If you want to pick one up, you might find it encouraging won't tell you who to vote for and kind of ask yourself some questions about your own motivations and your heart in terms of how we steward our um, responsibilities in our democracy. So here is our uh, benediction. So if you'd please stand. Here's a, a closing word for us to end with. Uh, would encourage you as you dismiss to say hi to somebody, pray with somebody, don't rush off too quickly, uh, connect with somebody before you leave. And we're really, really glad that you're here. Thanks for being with us. And thank you, Tanner, for bringing God's word to us this morning. We were blessed by that. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. What a wonderful uh, statement to leave on. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.